Amen, amen. Well, good morning again. Thank you so much, Cody and the worship team, for leading us in worship. How incredible it is to be with a room full of people singing How Great Is Our God, right? If you weren't with us last week, uh, we, we have started a new series in, um, for the fall, for the next six weeks. We're going to be in the book of 2 Timothy, doing a series titled Entrusted. So if you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope you do, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Turn over to or tap on, whichever way you prefer, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at the latter half or latter part of 2 Timothy 1 and in the first two verses of chapter 2. As you're turning there, one of the things that uh, we talked about last week was we mentioned about how um, whenever we were looking for our gifts, looking for how God has created us, it's best for us not to do that in isolation. It's best for us to do that as a group. I don't know if you remember me talking about that or not. But uh, oddly enough, I had an assignment for my class this week where I had to take a leading from your strengths assessment, which means I had to do this in isolation by myself, which I thought was quite comical since it was opposite of what I said last week. But I had the whole staff take this assessment, and it's always fun to look at your staff and see, okay, how are we wired, how are we gifted, and different things like that. But one of the things that I noticed about this assessment is there's one thing that's common amongst everybody, and I think you would agree Something that's common among every employee of a business, something that's common among each person, is simply this. We all want to know what is expected of us. We all want to know what is my responsibility, because if I don't know what my responsibility is, I can't do it, right? What is my responsibility? We all want to know that so that we can do our responsibility. Well, it's interesting what we're going to be talking about this morning is lining up heavily with that, about our responsibility. Now, before I, I give you the title, I want to remind you, before you jump into 2 Timothy, you have got to remember with every word where Paul is, what's going on. If you don't understand the setting, you're just going to miss it. You're going to miss what's going on here. In this letter, Paul is writing his, for the last time to his mentee, Timothy. Now, if you remember, Paul is in, in prison. He's not just in prison, but he is on death row. He is awaiting death, being beheaded. Now, if you remember, we talked about the prison that most people believed that he was in was literally a hole in the ground. There was a hole at the top of it that would lure you in, and you're just in the ground. It would have been cold. It would have been nasty. It would have smelt awful. There would have been no airflow. The only light he has is coming through this little hole, and he knows he's about to die because he's been preaching the gospel. And in the midst of this, instead of feeling bad for himself or feeling sorry for himself or questioning how he's lived that got him to this point, he wants to write a letter to Timothy, his mentee, to challenge him and to encourage him to fight for the faith. If you remember, 2 Timothy chapter 4 ends, or the, this letter ends by, by Paul saying, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. And the whole book of 2 Timothy is him telling Timothy how he can do that too. This is how you can run the race well. You're going to notice really from now on, this letter, Paul doesn't waste time. He is urgent. He is clear. He is concise. He's speaking with commands primarily. Last week, he had the introduction where he told Timothy, man, I'm reminded of you. I'm praying for you. I love you. Remember the gift you have. Fan it into flame. If you remember, he said, don't be ashamed of the gospel and share in suffering. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will endure suffering. And then beginning with chapter 1, verse 13 and on, what you see is just a litany of, of imperatives. I mean, just command after command. There's 30 from this part to the end of the letter. It's just commands on top of commands of him telling him, 
This is what you must do. And he begins by saying, you have a responsibility, Timothy. And friends, what I would tell you this morning is what he has to tell him is his responsibility is your and my responsibility as well. The title of the sermon this morning is A Divine Responsibility. A Divine Responsibility. And what I'm proposing, the whole purpose, is this. Every follower of Jesus has been entrusted with a divine responsibility. We must know what that responsibility is, and we must be faithful to do it, be obedient to it. And the questions I'll ask you throughout is, one, do you know your responsibility? And then two, are you being faithful? Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for a chance to to look into your word. Father, I pray, Lord, help us now in this moment. Help us just put out all distractions and be reminded and humbled by the fact that every time your word is open, it is you that is speaking. It is you that is speaking. You desire to talk to us. God, help us be amazed by that. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that want to accept whatever you have to say to us this morning. Father, put your words in my mouth. Keep my words out of yours and bless your people this morning. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So I want to read through what we're going to be walking through, and then I'm going to walk back through it afterwards and show you the three responsibilities that Paul passes on to Timothy. So chapter 1, 2 Timothy 1, verses 13 and following. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom were Phrygellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus, which is where Timothy is. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. So we're going to look at the three main drivers. There's actually four primary imperatives that drive this whole section. Don't you see the three responsibilities that are laid out in this, the first responsibility comes from verse 13. Again, he says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The first divine responsibility is this, cling to God's word in mind and action. The first responsibility is cling to God's word in mind and action, with, with your mind and learning it, but also living it out. Now, the beginning of this sentence is really interesting. He says follow, which really means hold on to. It means to grasp this, hence the words cling to for the point. Grasp this and hold on to it. What is he to hold on to? Hold on to the pattern of the sound words I've given to you. Y'all, this word pattern means the prototype. Imagine an architect who sketches out a blueprint and gives the blueprint to the builders, and the builders take it, and he says, hold on to the prototype. Here's the blueprint. That's exactly what Paul is saying. The blueprint is right here. Stay true to old faithful. Follow, hold on to the pattern of sound words. That word sound there in Greek is where we get our word hygiene from. 
sound, meaning clean, meaning able to make one clean, able to make one well, actually. So hold on to the sound words, the words that are able to make sick people well, unclean people clean. Hold on to the pattern, this prototype of the sound words that I've given to you. Let me remind you of the landscape of this day. Timothy is at a church, Ephesus. The whole reason he's in Ephesus is because the church was going downhill. It was being infiltrated with false teachings. It has been infiltrated with people in their midst who weren't living any differently than the people who were around them. So Paul sends Timothy, his most trusted and most loved mentee, or men, yeah, mentee, he sends him to go there to show them what it looks like to follow Jesus, to put things in order in the church that is there, and to fight against the false doctrines of the day. That's why you hear him, see him here saying, hold on to the sound words. You need to grasp the sound words that I've given to you and hold on to them. In preparation this week, I read a story. Uh, Tony Morita is the one who, who shares it, but it's from a book called The Archer and the Arrow. And in The Archer and the Arrow, they talk about the Mona Lisa painting. And they said some interesting things about it I thought was interesting and pertinent for the discussion this morning. This famous painting resides in a purpose-built, bulletproof case in a museum in Paris. I looked up the proper way to say this, but it's in French, and it was like Louvois, and I don't speak French, but the Louvre, as we would probably say it, the Louvre Museum is in Paris, and the Mona Lisa is considered to be one of the most valuable pieces of art ever, right? And so in the last 100 years, there have only been two times the Mona Lisa has left this museum. Can you imagine being the people who had to transport the Mona Lisa from one spot to the next. I can't imagine that. But can you imagine if the people that were in there were like, man, she's ugly. We've got to do something about this painting. Like, can you imagine if they were like, we've got to change some things. We need to update a few things here. We need to switch some things around here. We need to update. Can you imagine them doing that? What would happen if they got to the place where they were going? They would say, what have you done? You have ruined it, right? You haven't made it better. You've ruined it. You see, the purpose of someone transporting the Mona Lisa from one area to the other is to bring it in its original condition, not to change it, not to make it look any different, but to bring it and deliver it in its original condition. Friends, this is exactly what Paul is telling Timothy. I gave you what I received. It is your job to deliver it in the same condition. Do not change the gospel. Do not change the message. Do not change what we believe. Do not let people around you change your message methodologies will change, but our message never will. It's your job to hold on to it, Timothy. The prototype I've passed down to you, cling to it, and our job is to do the same. What's interesting, y'all, for us today is as he's having to fight for the purity of the word, before he can guard it, which you'll see he says next, he needs to hold on to it. He needs to know it. He must understand it. I think it's an interesting challenge for many people today because I think that many people even in churches, which remember, that's the primary area where they had to fight for the gospel was in the church in that day. I think in the churches oftentimes, we may have this same struggle. There are a litany of false gospels that are being passed around today. One of those is the prosperity gospel. This idea that if you know Jesus, then God will make you healthy. He'll give you plenty of wealth. This idea God will never give you more than you can handle. I would say, where do you get that? You think Paul's sitting there writing about health, wealth, and prosperity while he's about to die for the gospel? We have this happiness gospel that comes in. You know, if you follow Jesus, then your life's going to be happy. It's just going to be great. 
God is here to make your life better. That's just not true. You are here to be a part of his story. Don't get it mixed up. He doesn't exist to be a part of your story. You are here to be a part of his story. It's about his glory. It's about his name, not about your happiness. And don't get me wrong. You will have a peace that surpasses all understanding. You'll have a joy that you cannot even explain if you follow Christ and continue to follow him. But that doesn't mean it'll be easy. That doesn't mean it'll be all happy and jolly. That's a false truth. There's this truth of just a head knowledge only gospel, this idea that all you have to do is know the right facts about the gospel and just believe those facts and then just live however you want to. That is a false gospel. Friends, the gospel calls you to repent and place your faith in Jesus, which the Bible says you turn into a new creation. The Spirit of God comes in you, and if the Spirit of God is in you, he doesn't stay there. He comes out in your life. It's a lie that all you must do is just believe and then you're good. There's this also, another lie is everyone is good except for the bad people gospel. You may understand what I mean whenever I say that. I've heard plenty of people talk about, you know, just being a good person or just they were a good person. Friends, I have to tell you, the, the Bible never makes that distinction. I don't know if you realize that or not. You can search this from front to end. The Bible never says good people and bad people. It says all of humanity is here lost, separated from God, in need of reconciliation. And the only way people go from that sphere to this sphere over here is if they place their faith in Christ. In other words, there's no such thing as good people and bad people. There are those who are in Christ Jesus and so live like it, and there are those who are not. Friends, some of the hardest things I've ever had to see is going to funerals at times where people talk about this good person having no concept of the gospel, no idea of placing their faith in Jesus, no evidence of any Christian walk in their life and yet they speak with certainty because they were a good person that they're in heaven. Friends, that's a false gospel. The Bible is clear on this, who we are called to be and how you get to heaven. It is through being in Christ. I'm harping on this because I fear that many of us are holding on to a word that has been passed down to us more than the word that should be passed down to us. Let me explain it like this. I'm sure all of y'all have heard of the whisper game before where Basically, you get in a circle. I remember a lot of youth groups have done it where you're in this circle and you have this big group that comes around and one person whispers something in this person's ear and their job is to whisper it until it gets all the way around and by the time it gets to the end, they're supposed to stand up and say, this is the message. If you've ever been a part of that, by the time it gets to the end, I mean, it is grossly misrepresented, right? Like it is completely off base. You're like, I said basketball and you're talking about science. Like, well, how did we even get there, right? Like it is always so far off. Friends, I fear at times that that's what many people's knowledge is about the Bible. Let me explain it this way. Many people know what they believe, but they have no clue from God's word why they believe it apart from a proof text here or there. Friends, God didn't give us seven verses for you to memorize and live your life on those seven verses. He gave us the word of God to hold on to, to cling to. And if mainly what you know about the Bible has been passed down to you through hearsay or through the word, even if someone you respect Good people can be wrong and can be misled, right? Now I want you to imagine something different with the whisper game, if you will. I don't even think that's what it's called, but that's what I'm calling it. Imagine if instead of me whispering something to you and you passing around, imagine I write a message down on a sheet of paper and I hand it to the person next to me and say, hey, read this and then pass it around. What do you think the chances are by the last person that gets to them, they stand up and they say exactly what it says. They could do that. Why? Because they would stand up and they would read it, friends. Do you know what God has given us? 
Is your faith your faith, or is it something that someone gave down to you? Is your faith in Jesus bolstered on what somebody has told you, or is it bolstered because you cling to the word of God? You read the word of God. You know the word of God. This is what he's telling him. Look, I've passed this down to you. You have to hold on to this gospel. Cling to this gospel. Cling to the message. Know it, that you might be able to go against anyone who differs in regards to it. Friends, do you know God's word? Do you cling to it? Anything else we talk about here begins here. I want you to notice he's not just interested in him holding on to the word, but notice what he says. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. And notice he says how? In the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. John Stodd, famous scholar, hits the nail on the head. He says it this way. Paul was not just interested in what Timothy preserved, but he was also interested in how he preserved it. In faith, meaning no matter what goes on around you, you stick to the message. You let your life model the message. You act like the message. Let it be who you are regardless of what you see around you. But then he also says in love. Y'all, nowhere in the Bible does it say be a jerk for Jesus. Right? And yet some people think that's what it means to hold on to these truths. No, you hold on to them the way Jesus did. In love. You don't back down, but remember, Jesus came and he was full of truth and grace and love. Not just what we know, it's how we also pass it on. The first thing we must do is cling to God's word. Notice what he says next, though. Verse 14. Now, I want you to listen to this and remember, think in this mindset. Churches are struggling. Paul, the greatest missionary the world has ever seen, the one who's fathered so many of these churches, he's writing this to Timothy as he's about to die. He doesn't just say follow, but listen to what he says in verse 14. He says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. And there's your second imperative we see, guard, which is the second divine responsibility we have. One, cling to God's word in mind and action, but two, we're called to guard God's word against all corruption. Guard God's word against all corruption. He says, guard the good deposit. Y'all, that word good means beautiful. Guard the beautiful deposit, the beautiful treasure that I've passed on to you. You are to take it and you are to guard it. Y'all, we can't understand just how serious Timothy would have felt whenever he read this. His hero in ministry, the great Paul, who's done all the works that he's done, who's endured all that he has, the guy who I'm sure to many of them seemed immortal almost, I mean, this guy gets bit by a snake, shakes it off, doesn't have anything wrong with him. I mean, he just keeps on going. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. Literally, Timothy, before Timothy came to faith in Christ, he knew of the story where Paul was stoned to death in Lystra, thrown out of the city, and Paul got back up and went back into the city. And he's writing to him now. He knows that he's about to die, and what Paul's saying is, I can't fight for it anymore. My time here is done. It is now your job. Guard the gospel. Fight for it. Heretics abound. False beliefs abound. Wolves in sheep's clothing abound. And it is your job to fight for the purity of the gospel. Guard it from the corruption both within that can come and the corruption without. I've heard it said like this, the gospel is like water. Man didn't invent it. Man can't live without it. And whenever you have it, it needs to be purified. Remaining clean from any corruption. He says, Timothy, this is your task. 
Y'all, I would tell you, it is our task as well. Inside the church, we guard it. Hear me. Whenever you hear me talk, if you say, I don't see it there, you come talk to me. That is all I'm called to give you is to simply take this and do this with it. Whenever you're in your Sunday school class, if you see something that's not as sound with what we see here, talk to them about it. If you're in your small group, if it's not right here, then it's an opinion at best. We have God's word that's been given to us. We're to guard it inside of the church, but also we're to guard it outside of the church. I don't think I have to tell you that a fight is here. I don't think I have to tell you, parents in the room, if you don't prep your kids to guard themselves by the gospel, you'll find them far away from it pretty soon. I'll tell you, if you won't stand up for what you really believe in, not being a jerk, remember, in faith and love, if you don't live out your convictions, if you don't live in light of God's word, hear me, you're going to look so far from a Christian, you don't even know what it looks like. Guys, the battle is continually coming to us. I'm not saying it hasn't always been here because it has always been here, but you and I know things are different now. Intensity is rising now. If you want to live for Christ, it is going to cost you something right now. Are you willing to guard it? Are you willing to do whatever it takes to guard it against the lies that we see that permeate our culture today? Are you willing to stand up and say there is truth and God is the one who's given it to us? Are you prepared to guard it? Do you know it well enough to guard it? How is the culture going to come to faith in Christ if they don't hear the word, the sound words that are able to make the unclean person clean? The lost person saved. Guard the good deposit, the beautiful deposit. This is your responsibility, Timothy. I would ask you, do you realize just how crazy one this is for this to be given to us? And two, just how incredible it is. One of the things I was interested in this week was just to see some of the most secure areas in the world, some of the most secure treasures in the world. And one of the things I found interesting as I went to the scholar that is Google, I looked around to see like what, well, where are the most guarded, the most high security areas in the world? And you'll be shocked several times. Number one on the list is from Kentucky itself, Fort Knox. Now, I've never been to Fort Knox. I know very little about Fort Knox, but I began to read about how to get inside of Fort Knox to steal 5,000 tons of gold. Don't be shocked by this, but I read how if you wanted to break in, how could you do it? This is pretty much a way, so maybe you and I can talk about it afterwards if you want to go and, and do this heist, but it's surrounded by four fences. Two of the four fences are electric where if you touch them, you're not going to enjoy it. There are armed guards around the perimeter at all times, video cameras with inside security people watching the videos at all times. If for some way you find a way to get past them, the walls to the building are made of solid granite that is four feet thick, which I wanted to say a bit much, right? Four feet thick, held together by 750 tons of reinforced steel. Like, man, these guys are paranoid, right? And once you get inside, there's a maze of locked doors inside. One of those locked doors is a 22-ton vault door that can only be opened if you find some way to use your charismatic gift to woo every single worker inside that has a piece of the code to the vault. You need all of them to get the full code. If for some way you get all of that, you're incredibly convincing, I'm amazed, but once you get inside of the vault, you'll have to break into the smaller vaults that are inside the vault, and then from there you can start taking the 5,000 tons of gold that are stored inside of it. 
And then I like how the article ended. And do be careful when you leave because 30,000 soldiers from Fort Knox's military camp will be anxiously awaiting your arrival. Like it's crazy to think that they have this much security. What would make somebody do that? Go that overboard. What would make somebody guard something like that? They see the value of the treasure that is within, right? Friends, if you and I were entrusted with something grand, we would think of, of, of great ways to do something like this. If the most precious thing in my life, whether it's my kids or my wife, if I have to entrust them into somebody's care, I want to entrust them to someone I trust. I want to do something that is sure. But think about this. God has given his gospel to you and to me to guard it. That isn't to make you go, yeah, I'm pretty special. No, it's actually the exact opposite. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says it like this. It says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. I don't know if you know this, but jars of clay aren't anything that special. Jars of clay are invaluable. They're, they're easy to replace. They're a dime a dozen. They break really easily, right? But we have this treasure in jars of clay. God has entrusted the divine gospel that saves souls to those who follow him, to Christians. And what's crazy is he does it that way for a certain reason. The end of 2 Corinthians 4, 7 is we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, Paul even tell Timothy this. Notice how he starts. He says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you. It's only by the power of the Spirit in you. Friends, do you see the divine task, the divine responsibility you and I have been given? To cling to it and to guard it from any corruption, any impurity. We must guard it, and we must be careful who we guard it with. Notice what he says next in verses 15 through 18. I won't read them again. Well, you have the two crazy people. Part of their issue probably was their names, Phagellus and Hermogenes. These people have turned their back on Paul. Notice how Paul says, he says, everybody in Asia has turned their back on me. I want you to think about how crazy of a statement that is. The majority of the churches that Paul planted were in Asia. He's saying, Timothy, you know these people, and they have turned their back on me. Who's going to stand up and fight? He's saying, Timothy, it's got to be you. But he's saying, no, you're not alone. He tells them of a faithful brother named Onesiphorus, of how he came to Paul, how he wasn't ashamed of his suffering, how he wasn't ashamed if he were to have to suffer for the sake of the gospel as well. You may not know this, but in the first century, in a Roman prison, you had to fend for yourself. In other words, you got food because people brought it to you. You got drink because people brought it to you. That's why later on he says, if you can make it to me, Timothy, bring me my coat because I'm cold and winter's on its way. Friends, these people didn't just say that they were done with Paul. They deserted him, left him to die, if you will. And Paul's saying, if you go into a battle, choose the right people to go with. Friends, here's the truth. Whenever you are doing this, we are not doing this alone. We must come alongside of other people, guard the gospel together, and say, if you go down, I'm going down with you. Cling to God's word in mind and action. Secondly, guard God's word against all corruption. And then notice what he says in 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 2. Again, on his deathbed. Listen now, he says this. You then. You then. A lot of the bad examples I've given you, a lot of the good example, a lot of everything I've said to you, 
you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust that to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Here's a third divine responsibility that's been given to us. As we are called to entrust God's word to reliable people. Entrust God's word to reliable people. Cling to it, guard it, and then give it to others. Entrust God's word to reliable people. In verse 2, he says, And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust. Y'all, that word entrust means to take something and set it before someone. It'd be the same word used if you were to set the table, set food at the table. Saying what's been given to you, you are to go and to give it to other people. But not just any people, he says, give it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The word faithful there means reliable and trustworthy men. Faithful people who you passed it on to them and you believe that they're going to go and do likewise. Seek out those people, entrust it to them, and let them go and do likewise. If you've heard this passage preached before, many people turn and talk about it. It's a lot like a baton in a relay race. If you don't know what, uh, the concept of that, uh, I ran a four by one whenever I was in high school. My junior year, we actually had a fairly good team. I was the second leg, which means I was the slowest one of the four. But the way you run is you have four people who run 100 meters each to make one full lap around the track. The goal isn't to be the fastest team. The goal is to be, isn't to be the first team to cross the finish line. The goal is to be the first team to cross the finish line holding the baton. I remember my junior year, we went to regionals and uh, we all were going there really hopeful that we could get second place. I say that because we were all sure that Simsboro would win first. They just were fast. Every single year, we'd ran in them a few meets. It was even more frustrating because their colors were purple, and I just saw this purple stripe run by me. It made me feel even worse about myself. But I'm running the second leg, and I'll never forget, we, we, we get ready, and the race starts. And Jacob's running. I hear stick. You pop it in the back of my hand. I start running. And to my shock, I'm about to pass off the baton, and I'm in first place. And I can remember thinking, the Wheaties work. Actually, I didn't think that at all. I was thinking, something's wrong. Like, something's not right about this. I pass it off, and I turn around and look back, and I just see two Sims Bros guys just going at it, jawing at each other. See, what happened is the team that was obviously the fastest, most likely the fastest in the state, whenever he went to pass off the baton, he dropped it, kicked it out of his lane. Kicked out of the lane, you're disqualified. You're disqualified doesn't matter how fast you are. doesn't matter how good you were for that first 100 meters. You're disqualified. Guys, hear me. Westside has an awesome history. 40 years. Yeah, there's been ups and downs here, but Westside has an incredible history. But hear me, it means nothing if you drop the baton. It means nothing if you drop the baton. doesn't matter how great you were at this period in history, you must pass on the baton. doesn't matter how fast you are, how great you are, how large you were. Friends, look, it'd be great to get a large church. It's great to see more people in the worship center. But hear me, churches swell all the time and don't make any impact. You can swell or you can go stronger. I don't think I have to say what the difference between those two are. How do you grow strong is you pass on what God has given to you. You faithfully pass it on. One thing I didn't do that day that I wish I would, I wish I would have looked at the faces of the guy who was at the third leg and the fourth leg who didn't have an opportunity because the baton never got to them. Y'all, there's no guarantees Westside is here 20 years from now, 40 years from now. 
if history proves right, we're not here 100 years from now. Think about that. And the reason that churches fall off is because at some point something is elevated above the message. We become about putting on good programs or being very programmatic in our approach instead of being people-oriented and having a people approach. We start valuing the big and the grand. Whenever you look at Jesus' life, did he not value the exact opposite? Y'all, Jesus' whole life is an anomaly. I mean, why in the world? You have three years of ministry to make the biggest impact you can, the best teacher in history, the ability to do whatever you want to do, and yet you spend 90% of your time with 12 guys who are Jewish school dropouts? You're calling fishermen? The common man? You're pulling together a tax collector who Jews hated? You're pulling together a zealot who him and Matthew no doubt would have butted heads from the very beginning? You're pulling together, what are you doing? And what's funny is you even see it in them. The disciples expected it to blow up, but Jesus said, no, my method isn't the large crowds, it's you. Think about that. Whenever Jesus died, he had 11 scared guys in an upper room. And he had several women sitting at the foot of the cross. Everybody else mocking him. By all indications, he failed. But he didn't. Instead, those 11 guys, plus several others that come along, Paul and other people, they made disciples. They took the baton. They took the deposit that was given to them. And they went and they passed it on to other people. They taught them. Now think about what's the last thing Jesus said. The Great Commission. There's only one imperative. Go make disciples. Go make disciples. What am I saying? I'm saying we can do everything else right. If we don't make disciples, we fail. We fail. We don't pass on the baton. Why do we do it this way? Why do we think of it in this way? Well, I want you to look at the model that Jesus did, but look at the model that Paul is even arguing for. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says that people, Paul said, I have received a message that I have faithfully passed on to you, it looks a lot like this. You should see this graphic up on the screen. You have Paul. It had been given to Paul. Paul's poured into Timothy, to Titus, to Epaphras. Now he's poured into more people than that. We don't know who all traveled with him. But he pours into three guys. And his point is, it's entrust this to faithful men who will go and entrust it to faithful men who will go and entrust it to faithful men. Now I don't want to be out. I, I want to be clear. This doesn't mean that just men are who you're supposed to pass it on to. You're supposed to pass it on to the women as well. But pass this on. Be faithful to do this. I want you to think about why in the world would somebody do this? Well, I think oftentimes in our mind, we, we often elevate or think, you know what, if I could lead someone to Christ once a day for the rest of my life, that'd be the greatest use of my life. And I would tell you, you're wrong. Hear that again. If you could lead one person to Christ for the rest of your life, that'd be the greatest way you could live. I would tell you, you're wrong. The greatest thing you could do is pour your life into one, two, three other people for 12 to 18 months at a time and then say, go do likewise and do that over the course of several years. If you don't believe me, I'll show you. Let me show you this graph. Some of you have seen this before, but I want you to look at the far left-hand column, year, years one through 16. So this is 16 years of someone's life. Let's say that the evangelist, the person in there, they lead one person to Christ every single day for 16 years. They end up leading 5,840 people to Christ. That's incredible. Don't get me wrong. But I want you to look at the second column. The disciple, whenever he pours in just to one other person, and then in year two, 
That person goes and pours in just to one other person while he's pouring into one, and that keeps going down. By year 16, you see the number 65,000 disciples of Jesus. I often advocate for three to five in a group. You look at a D group of four, you do the same math out. If you pour into three people, and those three people pour into three people, they pour into three people, they pour into three people yearly, you get to an astronomical 43 million, which just sounds insane, right? Friends, the issue is, is so often we think we know better methods than what the Bible gives us. We want fast, quick solutions. Hear me, the best solution is get a couple of people, pour your life into them, and then say, now go and do likewise. Jesus said that to the disciples. Paul said that to Timothy. My guess is that's the way we should do it as well. The problem oftentimes is we don't realize the responsibility we play for other people. I've heard it said like this, and I think it's just put very well. Imagine if you were to go to class. Many of you just started class this week. I'm sorry to bring up that nightmare again. But imagine you're going to a class, and the teacher reads the syllabus to you. Early on in my life, I didn't like a syllabus now. I'll be honest, I love a good syllabus. It just makes me feel very happy, very clean, know what's expected of me. But imagine they're reading through the syllabus and they say, you don't have any papers you have to do. You don't have any quizzes you're going to have to take. You don't even have any, anything. In the middle, you're going to have one test at the end. And many of you are thinking, okay, good. I'll do what I always do. I'll cram for the last eight hours or 30 minutes before I get to class, and we'll be good for the final exam. But imagine if the teacher says this. Your grade is dependent on that final test. Everything, 100% is on that, but the kicker is, is you don't take the test. Instead, you have to train someone else this semester. Everything that you're learning, you train them. They'll come, they'll take the test for you, and what they make is your grade. Would it change the way you listen? Would it change your mentality, Right? Friends, in Christianity, oftentimes we don't realize it, but we're just doing what we have to do to get by. Do you hear the urgency of Paul? Do you see our world today? Friends, there is no greater time that you should be urgent than right now. Not just to get by, to recognize my faith matters for the next generation, for other people, people maybe even older than you that are newer in the faith or that have never been discipled. What you must do is take this and pass it on to other people. What if you stand before God one day and you are accountable and the well done, good and faithful servant comes back to, did you make disciples like I said? Maybe Jesus' final words should be our first priority, right? And I'm going to tell you they should be. This is what we should do. So what does it look like, briefly? Parents, I would tell you first and foremost what it looks like is this is your primary job for your kids while they're in your home. Your job is not to get your kids saved and baptized. Your job is to raise up a disciple of Jesus. It's not to complete a checklist or a finish mark. If I could just get them to do this, then we're good. No, the Bible doesn't ever treat it like that nor act like that. Your job is to raise your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, and it will take everything from you. Do you give yourself to your kids in seeking to disciple them? What does it look like in, in amongst the church? The primary way I would say it looks for most people in general is it looks like a group of three to five people of the same gender who push one another in their walks with Christ. The purpose of this group is high accountability, high expectations, pushing one another towards faith and obedience to life transformation. What do you do inside of a group like that? Well, one, you have the person who's the leader train them to this is how you read God's word and apply it. 
Friends, this is true of you. It was true of me. The primary reason people don't read the Bible, I do not think it's because they don't want to or don't try to. I think it's first because they've never actually been shown how to do it. They've been given a Bible and said, go, read it. Jesus didn't do that. The point of a discipleship group is to show them this is how you read God's word and how you extract the resources from it. Then you read together. Y'all, all of us know if there's no accountability in our lives, it's easy to go one, two, three weeks, months, years of never being in God's word. In this group, you pray together. You have prayer wars who you share and you bear the burdens of your heart and say, man, be praying for me. If we really believe James 5, 16, whenever he says the power, the prayer of a righteous person has incredible power as you're doing it. We pray for one another. We get together and we memorize God's word. Y'all, it's baffling to me how we can struggle over and over again with temptation and wonder why that happens, and yet the primary means to fight temptation is memorizing God's word, storing it up in your mind that you might bring it out in time of need. It's the way Jesus did it, and yet most people don't even attempt to memorize God's word. Now hear me, I get it. I know many people say I'm not good at that. No, the truth is, is you're not good at disciplining yourself to try and do it. Friends, we all memorize what we want to memorize. We have different capacities in that. Don't get me wrong. I had a professor in seminary who had 30 books of the Bible memorized. I don't think I have that capacity. One of them was Isaiah. I'm like, come on, dude, that's a litany for punishment. Like, you're just asking for it, right? But we're to push one another to memorize God's word and to to store it up in our hearts that we might live it out as for accountability, saying there are questions that me as a pastor, I am not away from temptation. I'm not above anybody in this room. If anything, I'm more susceptible to fall. I need accountability in my life. You need accountability in your life. How do you need to be pushed? It's for fellowship in a group of people you can grow close with and know and bear your burdens with. And some of you might say, Merrick, you don't understand. I've never been discipled before. I would tell you two things this morning. One, I would ask you this. If Paul were telling Timothy, go and pour into the faithful, would your name be on that list? If you were to say, go and take this truth and give it to those who are reliable and who are faithful, would Paul say, like you? Or would he say, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pour into that person. I'd find somebody more reliable, more faithful first. Friends, think about that. Are you seeking to obey what you already know in God's word? Are you seeking to serve? Are you seeking to grow? Are you plugging into a church? Are you seeking to to join a church and be an active member of it? I've heard it said whenever you want to be in a disciple group, the type of people you want to look for is look for people of faith who are faithful, available, they take initiative, they're teachable, and you see a heart for God and a heart for others in them. Take it and trust the divine treasure to them, raise them up and send them out to do likewise. Are you among the faithful? Maybe that's the first question you need to talk or answer for yourself this morning. Secondly, I would tell you, get plugged in here and it will happen. We started discipleship groups, but as you saw, even from the model, it starts with one group. We now are about to have our 15th and 16th discipleship groups that'll go for the next 12 to 18 months, and then we will multiply again and again and again. My hope is that there's not a single person in our church who is not involved in a discipleship group. And I would tell you, you put your mind to this, y'all, we will change, not just Callaway County, we'll make an impact far beyond this. Our mission statement won't just be something we put on the wall somewhere, it'll be something that actually happens in our lives. We'll make disciples here and around the world. Be faithful, get plugged in, and I promise you, it will happen. The next thing that I would tell you, maybe you say, Merrick, I've been discipled. I wanna ask you, are you passing it on? 
falls on his deathbed and using this opportunity to pass on truth. You never retire from this. You never graduate from it. As long as you are here, you're holding the treasure. The question is, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? Maybe you just need to seek opportunities to pour into others. Take someone to lunch. Invite people into your home, into your life. But this is what we're all called to do. There's no guarantees we'll be here in 20 years, but I promise you, if we do this, we will be by God's grace. There's three divine responsibilities. Cling to his word, guard his word, and trust his word. And I know I'm out of time, so I'll just briefly tell you the last part. How can we accomplish the task? Well, there's an odd imperative in this passage that we didn't look at, and it's in verse 1. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened, which is, which is an odd way to say it. Be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. This is odd because the imperative is present, passive. Present meaning it's continual, always be strengthened, but passive meaning it comes from outside of you, inside of you. Be strengthened continually by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. How can you do this? You stay connected to Christ. You stay connected to his word. It's odd that most of these letters begin with grace to you. Grace be with you is how they end. Grace comes to us through God's word. Be strengthened by him. Be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus like an energy source. It doesn't matter how nice of a TV you get. If you don't plug it in, it is useless. And it's the same with us. Friends, it means simply this. Your confidence and your strength is not in how long you've been a Christian. Your confidence and your strength isn't how much you know about the Bible. Your confidence and your strength isn't in how long you've been a member at a church. Your confidence and your strength isn't in how you serve somewhere. Your confidence and your strength isn't in being a leader where you are. Your confidence and strength is solely based on are you connected to the source. It's not about what you know. It's about who you know. And if you remember, Paul's talking to Timothy. He struggles with being timid, struggles with fear. And he says there's only one way to be strong. By the grace of Jesus. It saves you, but the grace of Christ sustains you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. God, we praise you and we thank you for your word this morning. God, I pray that as we've opened it, as we've looked at it, God, please help us wrestle with the truths that are therein, Lord. Help us wrestle with the truths within this text, Lord, in our hearts, in our minds. Lord, help us ask honest questions of ourselves. And Father, help us realize there's grace in our failures. There's grace in the ways we've erred. But grace comes to us that we might do something with it. Be strengthened to go out and obey. Father, help us this morning see how do we need to respond to your word? How do we need to respond? And ask all these things, Father, in your precious and your holy son's name. Amen. As the band plays, I just want to ask you to think about those three points and the last thing I said. We're called to cling to God's word. I want to ask you, do you? Do you? You can't and you won't guard it well if you don't know it. You can't and you won't entrust it if you don't know it. You can't pass on something that you don't possess. Do you seek to cling to it, to grasp it, to hold on to it? both in your life and through God's word. I ask you secondly, are you seeking to guard it? Do you realize that in the church, out in the world, you have a responsibility to guard the gospel of Jesus from any corruption or impurities? 
Do you realize that your workplace, this demands something of you. In your home, it demands something of you. In your neighborhoods, it demands something of you. Wherever you're at, it demands something of you. Are you ready and willing and prepared to fight the fight of faith? Third, I'd ask you, do you realize that this has been entrusted to you so that you can go and entrust it to other people? It was given to you for that reason, to entrust it into others. Do you realize that? Maybe this morning you need to repent saying, God, I've never even paid attention to that. Or maybe you need to realize, maybe I've never been taught this. I've never been shown this. I would tell you, go to the Word and see if it's not right. I would ask you, are you a reliable, trustworthy person? Friends, until you can get the gospel and pass it on, you must possess the gospel. Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? Do you recognize that he paid the penalty for you on the cross that you could not pay? You do not add to it. You can do nothing to better look yourself in his eyes. Rather, he died for you whenever you could not pay for the penalty for yourself. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead three days later, saying that he defeated sin, he defeated death, and he says all who repent literally have a change of mind about living for themselves in their way, have a change of mind, repent from doing life their way and their sin, and turn to him and believe in what he has done. They will be saved. The Holy Spirit will come in them, and they will be obedient in their lives. Friends, do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? If not, that's the first step. Then if you have it, it's been entrusted to you. You're called to be faithful and then to pass it on to other people. Are you seeking to do that? Friends, this morning we can worship because God has not left us alone. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word, but he said, you will be strengthened by the grace of God from outside of you, in you for the task ahead. As we stand, I just want to ask you, how do you need to respond this morning? Braden and I will be down here if you want to come talk to us. Maybe you just need to sit and pray through some of these things. Maybe you want to come and pray at the altar. I don't know what you need to do, but feel free to respond however God leads you to do so.